Scripture reading comes from Luke uh, 24th chapter, verses 13 through 35. You want me to read it or you want to read it? I know different people design their sermons. How did they they teach you at RTS? Go ahead and read it now. Okay. At Covenant, they taught us differently. All right. Anyway. I guess that's orthodox too. Okay. Ready? Luke 24th chapter 13 through 35 is in your bulletin. This is the word of God. Now that same day, two of them are going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does, does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in the word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They, they went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They, they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going. Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broken, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we talked, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true. The Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of God. Amen. It's really good to be um, back here. It's been two years since Catherine and I have been with y'all. A lot of y'all don't know me because I'm looking out and I don't know a lot of y'all. But um, it's really good to be back. And in some ways, um, Christ Central has kind of ruined us from our involvement because um, we loved it here and, and we have used Christ Central as the standard to compare all of our other church experiences, which is, is not a good rule of thumb because this is so unique and um, bizarre. And uh, so there's just nothing else like Christ Central out there. And, you know, my wife and I now live in Boone, North Carolina, and there's definitely nothing like that in Boone, North Carolina. So we, we miss Christ Central. Thank you so much for your prayers, for your financial support, for all the ways that you care for me and my wife, whether or not you knew that you were actually doing that. Um, so thank you. Uh, before we look at this passage that Howard just read, 
Uh, I just want to pray again real quick uh, and ask God to help us uh, before we do so. So if you would, uh, please pray with me. Uh, Father, as we turn our attention to this passage, uh, famous and familiar as it may be to some of us and weird and bizarre to others, um, just pray that you'd help us. Pray that you would be our teacher. Father, you know that there's no hope of us understanding what this means apart from your Holy Spirit's help. And so in some ways, I just want to echo what Pastor Howard just prayed, that you would open up our eyes and open up our ears so that we would see and hear that which is beautiful. And we need you to do that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when Conan O'Brien went off of um, the air from his previous show, before he started this new one on TBS, uh, do you remember what he said in his final show? He, he, you know, he knew that he had millions of people viewing, and this was his like, final message to his audience, and he was very serious. He was not joking. Uh, do, you know, do you remember what he said? You can find this on YouTube. Here's what he said. He says this, All I ask is one thing, particularly of young people that watch, Please do not be cynical. I hate cynicism. For the record, it's my least favorite quality, and it doesn't lead anywhere. Why does Conan hate cynicism? There are four questions I want to to try to raise and answer this morning, and that's not one of them. But here are the four questions (laughs) that I want to try to, to raise and answer in light of this passage. What is cynicism? What do we even mean by that word? Where does it come from? Why must you and I change, and then how do we get the power to actually do it? Okay, so what is cynicism? Where does it come from? Uh, why we must change, and then how we get the power to do it? So first, what is it? What is cynicism? I, probably the best definition that I've heard um, was somebody who described it this way, that cynicism is overly confident suspicion. Overly confident suspicion. You, you know, when, it's when you can look through somebody... And you can figure out what is really going on. And what is really going on underneath is something that is bad. All of their virtue, all of their niceties, all of their southern politeness is really just a smokescreen for some deeper hidden agenda, some deeper selfishness, some deeper lust that's going on. That you can look through them, figure out what is really going on, and then find a way to dismiss them and reject them. So, for example, stupid example, someone comes up to you and says, hey, man, Hey, lady, nice pants. You're rocking some sweet threads today. And uh, you you have about a split second to figure out whether or not you actually want to take them seriously. Or or you have that question that says, why are they complimenting me? Are are they they trying to sell me something? Are they trying to butter me up to, you know, get me on their nice side? What, What is really going on? And so you see how you can begin to sort of deconstruct and unmask their compliment to figure out what's really going on. And that's kind of what cynicism is. It's an overly confident suspicion where you can look through people, you can look through institutions like the church, like marriage, like the government. You can look through God and and find some way to dismiss it because there's something deeper that's really going on. But probably the best way to to, to talk about cynicism is not in terms of definitions, but in, in terms of kind of the mood, the feel of it. And so what I want to do is I want you to look at this passage because these two disciples really do embody the feel of cynicism. They are sort of the chief classic cynics of this passage. So if, if you look in verse uh, 13 through 15, we hear them leaving uh, Jerusalem, presumably going back home, and as they're walking home, they're processing everything that just happened. And what that means of what just happened was they were in Jerusalem, and of course Jesus' climax of his ministry was one of chaos and commotion, where people 
did not like Jesus and to the point where they executed him as a criminal. And so they're walking, they're leaving Jerusalem, and, uh, and, and Jesus uh, comes up to them. The resurrected Jesus comes up to them and asks them what's going on. And listen to their jaded response in verse 18. They say, are you a visitor to Jerusalem and do not, the, do not know these things that have happened here in these days? He's basically saying, dude, there were riots in the streets. Where have you been? That's the tone, jaded. And, and so then they, they begin to explain that this guy, Jesus, was killed. They don't know that they're talking to Jesus. They're explaining this guy named Jesus was killed. And look what they say in verse 21. Here's the key. They say, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. Here's what they're saying. Look, we had really hoped that God was going to do something and liberate our people, and he didn't. And in fact, three whole days have happened since all of our hopes just died up there on a cross, meaning I don't know how much longer God's just going to sit there and sit on his hands. We had really hoped that he was going to do something, and he didn't. And then they explain that these women had come up to them and had told them that Jesus had been raised from the dead. There are all these rumors going around that this Jesus had been raised from the dead, and it says that they were amazed, which means that they were just thrown off. They, they didn't believe it. They were suspicious. They were, cynic, they, they were skeptical of the claim that he had been raised from the dead. And so what, here's what I want you to see. Look at this picture of these two disciples, the feel, the mood that they sort of embody. They are uh, suspicious of any sort of claims. They're skeptical They don't have any real hope or trust that God does anything in the world anymore. And what I want you to see is that this is a picture of you and of me. These two cynics are us. We are a room full of cynics. And what I want to try to show you is that we are so much more cynical than we think we are. I mean, just think about the way that we think about um, politicians running for office, if you're anything like me, you hear the claims of, hey, if you just vote for me, if I get into office, it's gonna, I'm going to make it my number one priority to fix the economy or to uh, turn around the education system or whatever. And you look at that and you say, okay, yeah, yeah, right. We have heard that all before. Nothing's changed. All you want is the recognition and you want the cushy job in the corner office. That's all you want. If you're anything like me, you've become very cynical towards politicians. Or some of you just become very cynical towards preachers. Maybe me right now, what's that young man think he's doing talking up there or whatever? Or, you know, I've been in some situations where I'm like, man, there is no way that that human being is that enthusiastic about Jesus. I mean, let's be honest. And so we begin to look through and and to doubt and be suspicious of their sincerity, that, that they're not genuine. That's just a performance. A lot of us become very cynical about relationships, romance romantic relationships, where we just sort of reduce it to being corny, to being cheesy, that romance is just, is just cliche. And so I know of, uh, some of you who may have friends who just started a relationship, and they're all excited, they're enthusiastic about it, and they want to be around this other person all the time, and you don't want anything to do with them. You just want to avoid all that syrupy, sweet nonsense, and you're thinking in the back of your mind, okay, just wait till the honeymoon phase dies down and the claws come out and you get to experience what we've all experienced this, which is the drama and the chaos and the heartache. Wait for it. <laughs> we become very, maybe I'm just the only one, but we become very <laughs> cynical. But you know, this, this also bleeds into our spiritual life, if we're honest. 
Man, have you ever done this where, where you're praying and you kind of catch yourself praying and wonder, okay, does God even involve himself in the world based off of my requesting him to? <laughs> Has this ever happened to you where, where you've actually prayed for something and something in your prayer came true? Like what you prayed for actually happened and then you begin to doubt and wonder, I think that would have just happened anyway. Right? So this one kind of steps in and it slips in and it, and it kind of twists what we think about even the way that we pray. It comes true. Our prayers come true and we think, God didn't do that. It just happened anyway. It would have just happened anyway. And so what, what you have to see is that cynicism has this feel to it. It has this, this certain mood to it where, where you now take on this posture towards life of this hopeless and detached, disinterested, calculating perspective on life. And so the next logical question is, okay, if that's what it is, where does this come from? How do people like you and me get to a place like this, where we are this cynical? Well, I, I, this is the, so this is the second question. Where does it come from? Well, I think in a general sense, um, we just live in a very cynical culture. Uh, th- this is just sort of the air that we breathe. And, and a lot of it, I think, has to do with the fact that we live in a culture of consumerism, which means from the moment that you were born, you have been bombarded with advertisements from companies and people trying to sell you things uh, and making promises to you that they had no intentions of ever fulfilling. So, for example, you, you watch a, a commercial or whatever, and you begin to think, okay, really? So if I buy a bag of Doritos, I'm going to be driving, like, this sweet ride, and attractive women are going to be flirting with me, and I'm going to be the cool guy in the office and giving everybody high fives. And it's like, no, okay, this is ridiculous and stupid. And so what, what happens is you get trained by sort of the bombardment of advertisement, it, you become trained and conditioned into being cynical, into seeing through, okay, these promises, these claims that people are making are, are stupid. It's not legit. It's not real. But, you know, it's, it's just the culture we live in. It's, it's what we laugh at. It's the TV shows that we watch. You know, I, I grew up um, watching Seinfeld, which was, you know, like the most cynical show ever. And uh, we're friends, and a lot of y'all grew up with friends. Chandler, like, always has a cynical, snide remark to everything. That's just, like, who, what that character is. You know, young folk today be watching um, Family Guy or Colbert, Tosh.0. You know, this is just sort of the, this is just the world that we live in, the culture that we live in. It's just breathes cynicism. But I want you to see it actually gets, um, it gets a lot deeper than that. There, there are other sources behind why you and I are so cynical. Uh, here's one that I want to suggest is, is basically just circumstantial failure, meaning that it, cynicism kind of comes as a result of failed hopes. And this is kind of what is going on with these, uh, these two guys in this passage. Again, if you look at verse 20 and 21, they say that, I mean, they had hoped that God would do something and he didn't. They had put their hopes and dreams into Jesus, liberating their people from political slavery. And all of their hopes and dreams died up there on a cross. And, and you know exactly what that's like. When, when, you experience, when you experience circumstantial failure like this, when you had really hoped that something was going to happen and it doesn't, what that does is that, is that builds up scar tissue around your heart. And that scar tissue then begins to, to morph into this cynical outlook where you now become padded and protected uh, from never risking 
hope again, never being that vulnerable to, be, to run the risk of being hurt like that. And, and so hope just becomes kind of pushed out to the exterior. You know, I, I listened to um, Ben Folds, musician, uh, and, and on his last album, uh, he, he has a song on there called Picture Window. And it's the story, the song is basically a story of this, of this couple in a hospital room. And one of the uh, people on the cu- in the couple is on the bed. They don't explain what it is, but, you know, um, very sick. And um, uh, it's New Year's Eve, and so they're both looking through the window, watching the, the fireworks go off. You know, everybody's celebrating new beginnings, and they're here in this hospital room uh, undergoing this horrifically painful, sad um, situation. And here's what the chorus is of that song. Pardon the language, this is Ben Folds. He says this, you know what hope is? Hope is a bastard. Hope is a liar, a cheat, and a tease. Hope comes near you, kick its backside. Got no place in days like these. You know exactly what that feels like, right? And for some of you, you've been in a relationship with someone Maybe it was the guy who promised you, like, you were the one. Y'all talking about marriage, maybe even talking about the names of your kids down the road. And now you're at a place where that thing has been horribly blown to pieces. And you're looking back on that and saying, you know what, I actually believed that guy and I trusted him. And now look, it's all a joke. And what you're tempted to do in those moments, when the circumstances blow up like that, is to look back and to say, okay, I am... I'm just going to write off relationships altogether. I'm going, to, I'm going to resign myself to either hating the opposite sex or to just pull the plug on uh, my hopes that I will ever be in a good relationship ever again. That's when cynicism sort of comes into the situation. Or for some of you, uh, maybe you have put your faith in God for the first time. You believe in Jesus or come into church, doing the Christian thing, and things are going great until uh, your job gets pulled out from under you or until cancer hits, or until something else horribly terrible happens. And your, your knee-jerk reaction is, is to look at God and say, look, I, I, I trusted you, I believed you, I thought that this was not going to happen anymore if I was doing this. If I was believing in you, if I was going to church, I thought this was not going to happen anymore. And our instinct is to say, I don't even know if I can trust you anymore, I don't even know if you exist anymore. I know for some of us um, who find ourselves in, in very rough patches in our relationships, rocky friendships, rocky marriages. And you get to a point where you, where you had put your hope in the fact that if we had, I, I thought that since we had gone to counseling, that that was either going to fix our relational dynamic or that was going to change me or that was going to change the other person, and it hasn't. And so cynicism slips in and, and it says, look, um, there is, this is not going to change. I'm stuck in this situation. I'm stuck here, and there's no chance that, ever, that anything is ever going to change. Or at least that maybe counseling hasn't um, crept in and fixed this person or fixed our situation or fixed me or fixed this person or changed us in the timeline that I had hoped for. And so what, I want is, uh, what you have to see is that when our circumstances fail like this, when our hopes and dreams fall apart, cynicism comes in in many ways, kind of like the Dementors from Harry Potter. You know those things, those creepy, scaly, like hooded creature things? And, and their whole function in that series is to suck out the hope and the peace and the happiness. And so when something bad happens, it's like cynicism creeps in, sucks out the hope, and leaves you with this sort of padded, disinterested, 
uh, guarded, protected posture towards all of life now. That's one of the sources. It's just circumstantial failure. But here's another source that I want to pitch to you. is personal failure, our own personal failure. You know, uh, as Howard mentioned, um, Catherine and I do campus ministry uh, two hours up the mountain in Appalachian State. And here in about two weeks, there's going to be 16,000 students kind of streaming in from all directions, invading Boone, North Carolina. And what's really interesting about um, all of the... um, uh, new freshmen that get to campus, uh, they, become, they, they, they hit face-to-face with all of the enormous social pressure that exists there, the pressure to be cool, the pressure to fit in, the pressure to um, get into a right relationship that will lead to the right marriage, the pressure to have the right size of their body, uh, a pressure to get into the right uh, major, which will lead to the right job. There's this enormous social pressure to essentially be perfect. And, uh, of course, that's not unique for college freshmen, at ASU, that is, you know, our story. That's your story, and that's my story. There is this enormous pressure for all of us to appear cool and put together and smart and essentially perfect. Of course, the problem with that is we know we're not. And, and, and when we try to live in this disconnected world of we know we're not, but we're trying to live like that, our whole lives become complicated PR campaigns for ourselves, right? And so what we do is that we just name drop. Just kind of throw it out there to make sure that people know uh, who we know and are impressed with us. Or um, for the students in the room, you know, you just sort of slip into the conversation. You made an A on that test. Or like some of, some of our students do, just flat out put it on Facebook for everybody to see. Made an A! And uh, other ways that we do this are, um, you know, we just make sure that we're just really chipper and enthusiastic about everything so everybody knows, no, nothing can throw me off. I'm never angry. I'm never dis- depressed about anything. I'm doing great. Other ways that we do this is, we, is that we make sure that we slip in the words God or Jesus into a conversation so that the other person knows how spiritual we are. And so what happens is that the more that we do this, the more that we sort of project this PR campaign about ourselves, that we are put together and cool, what happens is, is this disconnect begins to widen, and the public me is smart and spiritual and funny put together, and the private me, the real me, is anxious and guilty and angry and depressed. And the more that this happens, the more that we see ourselves as phonies. We know that we are fake. We know that we're acting fake. And what cynicism does is it creeps in and then projects our phoniness onto everybody else. And we begin to see everybody else as just fakes and phonies. Everybody else is doing this PR campaign just like we are. And that's where cynicism comes from as well. It's from personal failure from our own personal failure to live up to our own standards, to be perfect or put together or whatever. Here's the last source that I want to talk about. Circumstantial failure, personal failure, spiritual failure. You know, you're a Christian, many of you, and uh, go to church, do the Christian thing. And just like the normal Christian life is at some point your heart begins to get out of tune with God. You know what I'm talking about? And... When that happens, it's not like life stops. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep, you know, doing the thing. So, you know, you keep doing the Christian thing, keep going to church, keep talking about Jesus, keep doing whatever, going to Bible study. But the problem with that is that as you do that, all of those words and all of those actions just feel very empty and hollow after a while. You kind of know that you're not really believing this stuff like you say you are, and there's, the, there's that kind of disconnect between what you're really feeling and what you say you believe. And so... Um, the way that this kind of uh, happens is uh, you start to sound phony to yourself 
when you talk about Jesus. And then especially when other people start talking about Jesus, they start seeming really phony as well. You sort of project your own issues onto them, your own phoniness and fakeness onto them as well. And so what happens is, you know, you'll share somebody, share something with somebody about your life and they'll say, you know, I'll be praying for you. And that doubt kind of kicks up in the back of your mind is, no, you won't. Because I know when I say that to other people, I don't go and pray for them like I should, right? Or, or, you know, for some of us this morning, even, you know, looking across the room and you see the people who are, you know, getting into the worship, closing their eyes, raising their hand, and you find some way to write them off and say, That's, they're, they're, not loved, they're not interested in God, they're not excited about God, they're just caught up in the chord progression or whatever. We find these ways to sort of project our spiritual failure onto other people. And so this is what happens. This is where cynicism comes from. It comes from our circumstantial failure and our personal failure and our spiritual failure and all these places where our hopes and our dreams have been sort of squashed. And we begin to now look through life with this lens of everybody is really out for themselves. And I'm going to be out for myself as well. I'm going to protect myself from this cruel, painful, prickly world. And here's the next question. Why must we change? For a room full of cynics, myself included, why is it that we must change? Here's why. Because cynicism is destructive. It is destructive. It will destroy you. I mean, the problem with cynicism is that as you retreat from life, and you cocoon yourself into sort of this bunker to protect yourself from all that is evil and painful and wrong in the world, when you do that, when you cut yourself off from that, the problem with that is that you also cut yourself off from all that is good and beautiful and right in the world. It's like hiding behind a shield. Sure, yeah, it blocks all the bad stuff from getting in, but it also blocks all the good stuff from getting in as well. And when you do that, when you cut yourself off from all that is beautiful and good and right, you shut down as a human being. My wife and I um, have been married five years. We went on our um, honeymoon to Northern California wine country area. It was beautiful. And um, one of the things that was so um, great about that is, is, you know, you go to these different wineries and, and you basically, for like five bucks, get to just sort of sample all these different wines that they're pouring for you and, you know, tasting them. Some of them are disgusting. You have to spit it out in the little spittoon thing. Some of them are amazing. And you, you have these conversations with, like, the wine guy behind the thing. And um, I'm, a, I'm a public speaker for a living. And, um, and um, uh, they ask you, you know, like, you, you take a, you take a, sip or whatever, and they're like, you know, can you taste, you taste that hint of apricot up in there, and, you know, there's, there's just a hint of uh, espresso, and, you know, there's, there's, their palates are so crazy, and you're just like, yes, I taste that espresso. It's, it's, <laughs> it's delightful. Full-bodied, very good. And um, the problem with um, uh, that week for us, for my wife, Catherine, and myself, is that I got sick about three days into this. And uh, just got a cold, I don't know, whatever. And my wife, um, this is a side story, but my wife um, initiated a no-kissing rule on our, um, on our honeymoon because she didn't want to get sick. Let's come back to uh, the story here. And uh, <laughs> so uh, for those, after that three days, yeah, that was a great way, great few days on our honeymoon, the no-kissing rule. Um, uh, what am I doing? Um, there are... Uh, <laughs> After, after, you know, I got sick, and uh, 
what, what, what I started to do to heal this, you know, sickness was uh, I would take, um, you know, those sucrets, which are these, um, you know, little red discs, have the cherry flavor. And what basically it does, it just kind of numbs your throat, numbs your mouth. And so everything is, tastes like menthol and cherry. And um, so what we would do is we'd go out to these wineries and everything tasted like menthol and cherry. And, uh, you know, these, like, try this, try this, try this, whatever. And um, my whole mouth was numb, and it was just everything tasted the same. And here's the point with this, is that when you cultivate this cynical posture towards life, it, it, it is like living on sucrets. And what it does is that, is that it numbs you to where you can't taste the disgusting, bad flavors of life that you don't want to taste. But the problem with that is that it also numbs you and desensitizes you from all that is good and beautiful as well. So everything just tastes the same. Life tastes like rubber. It's all numb. It's, nothing's getting through. And when that happens, when that is your posture towards life, you shut down as a human being. It is, it is destructive. Cynicism is destructive. But it's also deceptive. This is another problem with it. This is another reason why we must change is because it is deceptive. It is a lie. It, it, it tells you a way of looking at the world which is not true. Here's what I mean by that. I, I was doing a Bible study with some students, um, some college students, and there was this college student that was coming who loved Christianity, who loved coming primarily for the reason because of the freedom with which we were able to talk about the grittiness in our life and how raw and real and honest we could be about all the junk and the sin and the struggles, and he loved that. And so I remember at one particular point in this Bible study, I asked the question, you know, we're looking at this passage. I was like, what does this passage say about human nature? And he just kind of assertively jumped in, and he said, you know what this says about human nature? It says that we're all corrupted, you know, disgusting, perverted worms. I, I didn't know how a worm could be perverted, but, but you get his point. And uh, the, the, his point was, this says that we are messed up. And, and while the Bible speaks very candidly about how true that is, that we are radically messed up, where he and where cynicism and Christianity part ways is that Christianity also says that we are full of dignity and that people are full of value. We are made in God's image. You know, this is what Francis Schaeffer meant when he said that we are glorious ruins, that we, that we are like, you know, those Roman Colosseums, those glorious monuments that were majestic and wonderful that are now kind of crumbling and falling apart. We, we are simultaneously full of dignity and depravity, but cynicism says no, only depravity. Every intention that you have is only bad. Your, your acts of charity are only selfishness. Your enthusiasm towards God is, is fake, it's only selfishness. And that is a lie. It is not true. Cynicism is a false way of seeing the world because it only sees the bad. It does not see the good. And so that is why we must change. For a room full of cynics, myself included, the reason that we have to change is because cynicism will destroy us and it will destroy our communities. And for, furthermore, it is a lie. It is an incorrect way of seeing the world. Of course, the last question is how. How do we change? How do we get rid of this grid that most of us are looking through. Well, the passage shows, shows us, and I want you to look at that, okay? What does Jesus do with these two cynics? Look at verse 27. He does a Bible study. He does a Bible study with them. When it says that, it be, you know, beginning with Moses and the prophets, that's just Bible speak, that's shorthand for saying the Old Testament. 
he pulls out a Bible and starts doing a Bible study with them. And the question is, why? Well, I want you to see, he doesn't do it just to give them like a theology lesson or just moral guidelines. What he is doing is he wants them to see Jesus as the center of the storyline of the Bible and as the center of history. I mean, look at it in verse 27. He says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus says, look, the, the, the Bible is a story about me. This whole thing from beginning to end is about me. And what he does beyond that is he says, not only am I the center of the story, what is the center of my story about? What is the center of the Jesus story about? It is the cross. It is his suffering. This is why, if you look at verse 26, this is why Jesus starts talking about his suffering. And as the passage continues, Jesus you know, breaks the bread, and for whatever reason, I don't know why they, they couldn't recognize him before, but it's when they sit down at the table and he breaks the bread with them, that's when it clicks for them that, oh, somebody had to be broken. Somebody is being ripped in two for me and they begin to piece it together. So this is what Jesus is doing. He has, he, he's trying to say, look, you have to see that the whole fulcrum of history is me. And at the very center of that story is me on a cross. And look at what it does to him. Look at verse 32. The result is inflamed wonder. Look at verse 32. I'll read it. It says, Then they asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I mean, their hearts are captivated. Their imagination is engaged. They find this unbelievably beautiful. And so here's what happens. Uh, It says in the very next verse that they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. It's like they left all the food on the table. It's like we got to bolt right back to Jerusalem to tell everybody about what just happened. Here's what's going on. The solution to cynicism, how we get the power to change, is when we stop looking through everything but actually let our gaze settle upon the cross. That is the only thing with the power to melt the ice around our hearts and to free us from this destructive and deceptive pit that we have fallen into. But okay, how does that work? What what does the cross have to do with our cynicism? Well, if you think about it, what does the cross assume? There's a man up there dying. What does that assume? It assumes that God knows everything about you and me. It assumes that he can look through you like he's looking through glass, and he can see all of the shameful secrets, all of the hidden agendas, all the selfish motives, all of the kind of honest struggles. He sees through it all. While we just sort of project and kind of think that's what we're seeing, he actually sees it. And the cross assumes that somebody had to deal with that. Somebody had to deal with all of that junk that all of us deal with. But what does God do? He's the only person who who really had the ability and the power to be cynical and to dismiss us and to write us off. But the cross assumes that he doesn't. It it assumes that he he looks through you and he sees it all and does not cynically dismiss you, but graciously receives you. That is what the cross assumes. The, The gospel is that we are so messed up that somebody had to die for us, but that we are so loved that that Jesus was glad to die for us. And when you put those two things together that the cross sees through and actually knows that we are a mess, but yet God does not reject us but receives us, that is where you will get the power 
for your cynicism to melt away. Because how, how can we look through life like this anymore when this is the way that God looks at us and the way that God treats us? This is where we get the power. When you take that in by faith, that begins to melt the ice around your heart. So let me wrap up with this. Have you all seen that new show by um, Jerry Springer called Baggage? You know you have. It's, um, it's on the um, game, whatever, the game show, show, challenge, challenge, channel? Wow. Um, it's on the game show channel. Jerry Springer has a new show called Baggage. And basically the whole premise behind the show is that a, uh, a guy, kind of a main con- contestant, will have these three um, women on stage that basically slowly as the, as the show goes on reveals their baggage, meaning kind of all their disclosed dirty secrets that they've you know, never told anybody. So like one of the girls will say, I have 18 cats. Or you know, another girl will say, you know, I at one point cheated on my boyfriend with my stepdad. I mean, it is Jerry Springer. And um, another point will say, you know, I'm 40 years old and I still live with my parents and I have no desire to leave. And it gets, you know, they start revealing all of these, all of this stuff about themselves. And the guy sort of at the end of the show has to decide whether or not he wants to take them on and go on on a date with them. If he wants to take their baggage or sort of he gets this little tagline to say, that's too much for me. Or it's like, I'm not willing to take on your baggage. Here's why I bring that up. (laughs) God knows your baggage. God looks through you and knows you from top to bottom and inside and out, and he knows all of that stuff. He's put it all, you know, it's all on the table, and his reaction is not to cynically dismiss you and to say, that makes me sick. I want nothing to do with you. God's reaction is to say, I will give up my only son to get you and to take on your baggage. That is his posture towards us. And when you let that in, slowly over time, you begin to see, okay, I have a whole new way of living now. I cannot be cynical about this relationship anymore. I cannot be cynical about the church anymore. I cannot be cynical towards God or towards my family, towards my parents, towards these people anymore. Because the only person who could be cynical about me wasn't. And his grace towards you is what begins to melt the ice. When you let your gaze settle upon the cross, that is where you get the power to do it. And so my invitation for you this morning, my invitation for me this morning, is to not look through the cross, to let our cynical, overly suspicious gaze look through the cross, but to actually let our gaze settle there and to let his grace towards us melt away our cynicism towards everything else. So that is your invitation. That's my invitation.